Good morning and bonjour. Des Juifs, oh, acte 14, uh, 19 et 20. Des Juifs arrivèrent d'Antioche et d'Econium et ils parvinrent à retourner le peuple contre eux. Ils lapidèrent Paul, puis ils le traînèrent hors de la ville, croyant qu'il était mort. Mais quand les disciples se rassemblèrent autour de lui, il se réleva et rentra dans la ville. Le lendemain, il partit avec Barnabas et pour Derbe. Acts 14, 21-23 After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening dis the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Amen. Thanks, Michael. Love hearing the word of God read in various languages each week. and We've been doing that through the book of Acts to remind us that the gospel is this good news going out to all people groups of the world. And so it's been such a joy to get to hear that each week. Uh, <laughs> it was funny at the first service, we had a slight miscommunication and he read the part in French, but then he switched to the wrong chapter. Same verse as wrong chapter, but chapter 12. And so in English, everyone heard, and then Herod fell to the ground dead and was eaten by worms. And he just walked off the stage. And it's one of my favorite moments uh, in the history of our church. So welcome. I'm Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to see you all. And if you're joining us online, uh, glad to have you joining us as well. And uh, I want to just take a really quick moment before we jump into this chapter. Just one little personal remark. Uh, today is a big day for the Gray household. Our kid number one, uh, uh, our oldest daughter, Mackenzie, turned 16 years old today. So it's a big day for the Gray household. And... Uh, She's, I think, watching on the live stream here this morning, and so just want to say, uh, being a pastor's kid comes with several unique challenges. Uh, not only do you have to deal with the regular dad jokes, but you have to deal with pastor jokes as well. And you also can find in a lot of churches where pastor's kids feel like they live under a microscope, like they have to get it exactly right or else they're going to reflect, reflect badly on um, you know, their dad or the family. And I just want to say to our church family, too, I, I'm so grateful for the environment of love and grace that, that you all have expressed to my kids and the other pastor's kids as well. And so, Mackenzie, we love you. So proud of you. Happy birthday and uh, incredibly grateful for the young woman of God that you are becoming. And so, yeah. Also, one other thing. I don't usually wish other members in the church happy birthdays, but Mackenzie has a friend, Ashley, who they share the exact same birthday. So happy birthday to you, too, Ashley. Uh, sweet 16. Yeah. When, when Mackenzie was first hanging out with Ashley, she's like, did you know we have the exact same birthday? I'm like, I won't believe it until I see a birth certificate. So I'm still waiting, Ashley. All right, today we are in Acts chapter 14. And we know that the book of Acts follows a specific pattern. That Jesus, uh, he died, he rose again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, where now he rules and reigns as the one king over all. And he told his disciples that they were going to start out in Jerusalem telling everybody about what happened. Then they're going to go to the rest of Judea. Then they're going to go up north to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And we know that uh, before Christmas, before Advent, we looked at the conversion of a man named Cornelius, a, a Roman centurion, not Jewish at all. It's this big deal, this big moment where the gospel message is received and the Holy Spirit is given to a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, the exact same as the, the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. 
And then last week, as we picked it back up, Pastor Jason preached through two chapters, uh, did a phenomenal job of showing us this, this turning point in the story. We've now gone from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. We're now turning to the ends of the earth, and the, the gospel is, is, is going out, and the, the people of God, this Jesus movement, is, is being comprised of people from all those different parts of the world. And so when we pick it up here in chapter 14... It's going to focus in on two people, Paul and Barnabas, and they're encountering some things in these different regions of the world. It's like, we're not in Jerusalem anymore, Toto. And they're going to have to figure out where to put their focus, how to, how to, how to focus and how to prioritize things. And so uh, before we look at this chapter, would you guys pray with me? You can pray for me. Lord, I ask and pray that you'd help me to communicate the truth of your word today with, with passion, with joy, with clarity. Lord, I pray that you'd guard my lips, that I would only teach those things that are in line with the truth of your word. And God, for each and every single one of us here, would you help us to focus? God, with so many things vying for our attention, may our hearts, particularly in this moment, but not just this moment, every day, may our hearts be directed and focused on you, our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. So the other night, I was running a quick errand to the grocery store. Very important stop for some ice cream. And I had child number four with me, my youngest daughter. And we're coming out from the grocery store. And uh, last year, I got a new car. I'm freed from the curse of that evil Volvo that I hated so much. Uh, Not a new car. It's like nine years old. It's a Honda Pilot. uh, But it's got a couple features that are pretty fancy, at least to me. You know, it's got like a backup camera. And maybe most fancy of all, it has a button that you can push. And the back hatch will open and close kind of automatically. I'm like Starship Enterprise here or something. So Hadley and I are coming out of the store. We've got the ice cream, and I push the button, and the back hatch opens up, and her, the, the back row is the smallest seat. That's where her booster seat is, and she likes to climb in the back, and so she's getting herself situated, and I walk, and I sit down in the driver's seat, and I'm getting myself buckled, and I said, Hadley, are you, are you buckled? She goes, yeah, and making sure she's out of the way, and so uh, I go to push the button, and as, as we were kind of getting situated, a car pulled up next to me, and a young woman gets out of the car, and, and she's, you know, probably 24, 25, 26, somewhere in that range, and so I lean down, and I push the button, and the back starts closing, and I'm getting things kind of situated, and all of a sudden, I hear this loud, sickening crunch sound. The young lady was looking at her phone, and did not see the descending Starship Enterprise door and ran her head into it really hard. Now, the sensor in the door said, that shouldn't have happened. And so the door pops back up. She's dazed and confused. Now she's like in the back of our car, leaning over Hadley, who's like, what the heck just happened? I'm like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And she's like, uh, yeah. I'm like, I'm so sorry. What happened? I think it was closing. And you watch, like, oh, okay. And kind of this weird, awkward moment. She kind of wanders off. I was like, goodness sakes. I've got more though. So I I wait, I look, and now I really intentionally push the button and door closes. I hear click. I'm like, okay, my seatbelt's on. How do you good? All right. I put it into reverse and my backup camera appears. And there she is in my backup camera. Like, ah, and I hit the brake. Apparently, she had, when she smashed her head on my car, she dropped her phone 
walked towards the store, went, oh, I better go get my phone, walked back and knelt down behind my car to get the phone as I'm putting things in reverse. The moral of the story is phones are trying to kill you. Put them away. It's a very surreal experience. I enjoyed my ice cream a lot that night because I don't know, maybe I'm never going to get to eat ice cream again. I could die at any moment, so... She hadn't focused. She, she was there at the grocery store. She should have gotten off of her phone, paid attention, because there are consequences when you lose focus. Now, we live in a society that is demanding your attention constantly. Your phone, I mean, just that specifically, is beeping, is, is dinging. There's billboards. Hey, buy this. Think about this. Advertisements, social media, the radio, the news. Everywhere you go, there is a constant cacophony saying, hey, pay attention to me. I even think about my oldest, Mackenzie, starting to drive on her own this week. And just that idea of focus. You have to learn as a driver how to balance your focus. Yes, you have to look ahead, but you also have to check your mirrors and you have to pay attention to the road around you. You have to learn how to have this balanced focus. Now, As Paul and Barnabas go into a new region of the world, they're confronted with some things that they have never seen before. It's a new experience. It's a new day. And they have to learn how to balance their focus. And there's some things we can learn from this chapter that I think we can apply to our own lives. And the big idea simply boils down to this, that followers of Jesus must learn how to balance their focus in three directions. Upward, in worship of God. Outward, in mission and evangelism to the surrounding culture and inward to the community of faith, the the family of God that we've been saved into. I've got a whole chapter to get through, so let's jump in. Not two whole chapters, sorry, Pastor Jason, but one whole chapter. And actually, speaking of that, I want to go back to chapter 13, verse 52 to start because it's this really important bridge verse. You know, our chapters and verses, those were added centuries after the Bible was written. And they're a little bit arbitrary, a little bit artificial at times. So I'll dip back into 13 here because you see that there's this really important summary statement that bridges us from chapter 13 into chapter 14 and really is what makes us, uh, helps us to make sense of the whole entire thing. It says the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Isn't it great that the Lord fills us not just with his Holy Spirit, but with joy? So... In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue, as usual, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This is, you know, the the Jewish people had been dispersed because of the various uh, uh, exiles and persecutions, and so they're all over the known world. So Paul and Barnabas would just do the, the normal thing of going into a synagogue and beginning with the Jewish people. But now, because they're in the the Gentile Greek world, they can uh, expand those who are hearing more than before. So a great number of both Jews and Greeks, not non-Jewish people, Gentiles, believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there for a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord. The Lord who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. Isn't it good that the Holy Spirit empowers us for acts of ministry and acts of service? Verse 4, but the people of the city were divided. Some siding with these Jewish, hostile Jewish people and others siding with the apostles. 
And when attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, so much anti-Semitism could be dealt with by reading the actual text of Scripture. This is not a racial thing. This is not an ethnic thing. This is a faith thing. Jewish and Gentile people believe the gospel. Jewish and Gentile people oppose the gospel. So this group, this, this group got together with their ru- rulers and they want to mistreat and to stone them to death. But the apostles found out about it and they fled because they're not dumb. Even though they're empowered by the spirit to do signs and wonders, when somebody's trying to kill you, maybe you ought to move on to a different town and preach the gospel and do some signs and wonders there. Holy Spirit empowerment is not opposed to common sense. They fled to Lystra and Derby into the surrounding countryside, and there they continued preaching the gospel. I want to focus us uh, in the first direction towards God, and specifically, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, Sometimes, and we, we see this because it says in verse 52, the disciples, will, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. But continuing down in uh, 14 verse 3, it says that the Lord testified to the message of his grace by enabling them or empowering. The same language is used of the Holy Spirit and of the Lord. Sometimes... We Christians, we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but thinking about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit can slide into a category in our minds that's almost more akin to an ethereal force or a power. Sometimes, most directly like the force from Star Wars. This ambiguous, amorphous sort of power. Friends, the Holy Spirit is God. Personal, the third person of the Trinity fully God, sharing in all of the divine attributes and communicable that we can talk to God, the Holy Spirit. We can receive power from God, the Holy Spirit. I had a professor in, uh, in, in seminary when I was being trained and, and he, uh, whenever he would speak of the Holy Spirit, he would get rid of the word the. He would just say Holy Spirit. And at first it bugged me because I was raised in church and nobody ever never did that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go back to my you know, childhood Pentecostal roots and you ought to be saying the Holy Ghost because that makes people uncomfortable and that kind of delights me at times, right? The Holy Ghost. But he, and it was interesting, so I started looking in the Greek when I started learning the biblical languages and sometimes in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit has the Greek, the definite article, ha, huh? but other times it isn't. It's, it is just Holy Spirit. And so I'm okay, well, there's biblical justification for that, but his reasoning was when you put the word the in, it's far too easy for us to think force or impersonal. When you just say Holy Spirit, that maybe helps it be a little bit more personal in our minds. So I just offer that to you. That one's completely free of charge. The Holy Spirit is God. Number two, Holy Spirit is priority. We were discussing this as a staff this last week, and and Pastor Kyle pointed out that, that I can't even talk about mission to the world, and I can't even talk about being built up as a church community if we are not regularly engaging with God the Holy Spirit. If we are not filled with the Holy Spirit, what makes us think we can do anything? That's our natural ability. So we have to prioritize our engagement with Holy Spirit. Number three, Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. Again, verse three, it says that he empowered them to testify to the message of his grace. One of the other reasons why sometimes we ignore Holy Spirit is that 
the Holy Spirit has a unique role, has a unique function between the three persons of the Trinity, and that is to point us to Jesus. Holy Spirit, oftentimes, I've heard the language, and I think it's appropriate, that Holy Spirit takes a slightly more deferential role to work behind the scenes, to work in the hearts and the minds of believers, to turn our focus and to turn our attention to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the one who lived and died and rose again and is now Messiah, King, over all, forever and ever. Amen. So that's our focus is, is Jesus. But, but, but in so doing, we, we, we engage with God, the third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit. Because, number four, the Holy Spirit empowers believers. The Holy Spirit empowers us. Now, here we see a clear picture of them being empowered, excuse me, to do something that they could not do on their own. Signs and wonders. I don't know about you, I don't have the ability to heal anyone just on my own. But when the Holy Spirit shows up and I can pray for healing, God does miraculous things. That's amazing. But do you know what else the Holy Spirit does? He not only can give us supernatural and miraculous abilities, he can take those things that are natural abilities and turn them into a supernatural sort of a thing. How do I know this? Because the New Testament lists uh, administration as one of the gifts of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but you see like the, the spiritual gift of administration. Like I know some real godless pagans who are good at administration. I've been to the DMV, right? Like... That was a low blow. I'm sorry. But you think like, what, what, a, what a, I mean, come on, like, what a kind of boring sounding thing, really the spiritual gift of administration. But here's the thing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you are naturally good at administration, when you are being empowered by the Holy Spirit, he, he takes that natural ability and uses it for the glory of Jesus and for the building up of the saints. That's what makes it a spiritual gift. Somebody could sing a song. There are a lot of people who, who don't worship Jesus, who are really good at music. But when the Spirit shows up, that gift of, of singing and leading music becomes something that gives glory to Jesus and builds up the body. The Holy Spirit empowers us both supernaturally as well as working in and with our natural abilities all to give glory to Jesus, to point our attention to him, and to build up the body of believers. You guys with me? The Holy Spirit needs to be our focus. And I pray that God would make us the kind of church that is more comfortable engaging with the Holy Spirit without being afraid of some sort of fanaticism breaking out. In fact, I think it was Myung that said this last week to us, we we need to be a little bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable. I'm just preaching what everyone else around me said this last week. It's good. All right, I want to move on to focal point number two, picking back up in verse eight. In Lystra, now this is the city where they're at. Kind of pause here. Lystra is a city in what we would call modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. There's a man sitting there, no strength in his feet, had never walked, had been lame from birth, and he listened as Paul spoke. Again, this is not just about a random healing. This is about the message of the gospel. After looking directly at him, And seeing that he, this man, had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Hey, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began walking around. Now, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lycaonian language, that's the region where they're from, and that little phrase is interesting that that 
Luke tells us it's in this other language that Paul and Barnabas likely don't understand. It takes them a minute to kind of catch up to what's happening here. He's yelling in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. You know, um, the the Greco-Roman world viewed gods differently than we view God. Because we have a a largely Judeo-Christian framework and heritage here in the West. When we think of God, we think of, you know, uh, eternal. When they thought of gods, they thought it really is closer to superheroes. Creation itself is eternal. We are mortal. And in between, there's this kind of middle category of gods that are superheroes. They're immortal. They have a different nature than us. Sometimes they look like us, but they live on a mountain and we can't really get to them. And they fight and they sleep with each other and they do all sorts of stuff. And then every once in a while, their lives affect our lives. In fact, there's archaeological evidence that suggests that in this region of Lyconia, that there was an old myth that the gods had come in human form before, centuries earlier. And the people of the region had ignored them and not treated them uh, with hospitality and received judgment because of it. And some scholars suggest that it's because of this background, it's because of the knowledge that our ancestors blew it so bad, why they just go over the top here to make sure that they don't mess it up again. By the way, Zeus and Hermes are the Greek names. In Roman, they would be Jupiter, which is my second favorite planet after Earth. I love the Earth best. And... (laughs) Hermes, I mean, come on, we can't live on Jupiter. And Hermes is Mercury. Usually has the wings on the side of his head. By the way, it's also the exact opposite reaction of Herod in the last chapter. Watch this. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of town, he started bringing bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer them a sacrifice. And Barnabas and Paul are like, no, no, no. They tear their robes, opposite of Herod from last chapter, and they rushed into the crowd saying, you people, why are you doing these things? We are people also just like you. We're we're not immortals. We have the same nature as you. But but, uh, we are people just like you, and we're proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God. The living God uh, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. The universe is not eternal. God is. He made it all. We have a nature just like you, but there is one who is actually in charge of all this stuff. In in past generations, he just let the nations go their own way, right? Babel and the the fallen sons of God ruling over them. In in the past, he just let them go, but he, he didn't leave himself without a witness. He left clues everywhere. Since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. He's just saying, every time you have an enjoyable experience, That is God trying to get your attention to point you back to himself. And and now the rescue of all the nations has begun. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, all the nations, they don't get to go their own way anymore. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Let's focus on engaging with the culture for a moment here. A couple of thoughts. First one is this. The gospel is incredibly adaptable. There has never been a religious or philosophical movement that has had such 
widespread geographic, ethnic, uh, 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 socioeconomic impact as belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. It is remarkable. If you've ever gotten an opportunity to travel to different parts of the world or have worshipped with other people around the globe, it might look different, it might sound different, but as long as Jesus is exalted, the Bible is open, bread and wine are served, and, and, and the, you know, the, the, the worship of God is taking place, it is amazing to see. It is a remarkable thing to see. The gospel is incredibly adaptable. We even, we even heard it last week from Pastor Jason that the, the, the ethnic diversity, the racial and ethnic diversity of this early Jesus movement is just remarkable, especially at this time of the world. You think about other world religions. They're much more uh, monolithic. Christianity just goes out to everybody because it's God's rescue plan for all peoples. But it's interesting that Our sinful hearts even can seize upon that as an opportunity. The second thing I want to say is the gospel is about Jesus, not us. One of the things that can happen in our sinful, idolatrous hearts is we twist the adaptability of the gospel into something that serves me and looks like my personal or cultural preferences. I remember being a kid, and I grew up in the kind of churches where we pretty much always had drums and electric guitars in church from the time that my parents became Christians when I was like three years old. I didn't learn until much later that, oh boy, that's controversial. I didn't realize it. Drums? Church? What's wrong with that? In fact, I'd like to throw down a sick drum solo for Jesus right now if you let me. And then I found out from a guy in a necktie— Always watch out for guys in neckties. I found out from a guy in a necktie who said that it was the devil's beat and that God couldn't be praised in worship with drums because that was the beat from the devil. And I was like, well, that's really dumb because the beat is just sick and makes me want to like worship Jesus. And also I'm pretty sure symbols are mentioned in the Bible for crying out loud. I remember going to, I went to music school. I don't want to talk about it, but I went to music school and uh, in an ancient world music class, there's these musicologists that have tried to reconstruct what like ancient Greek music would have sounded like, or even even more ancient, ancient Near Eastern music. Let me just say, it would not be your cultural preferences. If we could hear what the Psalms themselves actually would have sounded like, we all might be, that's weird to us. When we take preferences and elevate them to the level of biblical authority, we're in dangerous ground. It says that the Holy Spirit enabled them to testify to the message of his grace. The gospel message is about Jesus, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, not about our cultural or personal preferences. Which leads me to point number three, that to engage with the culture around us requires fresh eyes. I think about trips that I've taken uh, overseas to Mexico and to Uganda and just landing in a different part of the world. You, you look around you very differently. I've not served in long-term missions, but, but people that I know from the United States who have left and gone overseas to serve in long-term missions, they tell you that when you land, you have to really study and analyze the culture around you. And one of the problems with us living, largely staying put in our own culture, is there are certain things that we take for granted and are just assumed and we don't engage our culture like a missionary. I had an opportunity this last week to think about our own society and our own culture with some fresh eyes. Uh, I was 
like many of you watching the news and, and reading about the, uh, just the horrific events that took place at the capital of our United States, this is the part when the room gets real awkward and silent, but it's okay. We can go there together because I'm reading about this, you know, people dead and dying and breaking into the halls of the Capitol. And I remember just sitting there thinking and I'm reading and I'm praying, like, how did we get here as a nation? How, what, has, what has happened? And, and I'm reading an article and it mentions the Capitol building itself. It mentions a painting, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that. I actually have a picture of it. Will you throw that, that first picture up here? This is the painting that is on the ceiling of the Capitol Building of the United States of America. It's uh, 180 feet tall at its peak and almost 5,000 square feet. The painting is entitled The Apotheosis of George Washington, in which George Washington is surrounded by various... Roman gods and goddesses. Like the first one here, this is the Roman god Vulcan. Uh, no, Gene Roddenberry did not invent that word. It's, a, it's an old Roman term. He's a god. Or the next one, uh, this is the Roman god Neptune. You see his trident. I think it's funny that there's like Greek and Roman togas and naked people and then also people in like 18th century knickers over there. Like mixing genres. Here is the Roman god Mercury. Look at that. That's Hermes from Acts chapter 14. Painted on the Capitol. And the, the last one is, uh, I pulled up, George Washington. It's very weird. <laughs> Surrounded by Roman goddesses. You can see a little bit down below. That's a made-up goddess called Columbia, the American goddess of freedom. Do you know what the word apotheosis means? Becoming a God. This painting is entitled, The Moment George Washington Became a God. So here I am, watching these, like, just almost impossible to reconcile scenes from our capital, happening inside a building that has a painting over its roof called The Deification of George Washington. Now, I would wager none of you have ever prayed to George Washington? If you have, we need to talk after the service is done. But we live in a culture where the Capitol building of our United States has a painting called When George Washington Became a God. Now, we maybe have never prayed to George Washington, but is it not reasonable to conclude that in our society, people treat our presidents and our vice presidents and our politicians like little demigods and goddesses, like heroes who are going to show up and rescue us, heroes who are going to show up and save us. And when they do good or when our guy wins or when our gal wins, we bring out the proverbial bulls and the proverbial wreaths to praise them as gods and goddesses. And when they disappoint us, we get out the pitchforks and we get out the stones to throw them under the bus to crucify them as demons. It is not impossible to see how we got to this point as a nation when we have deified our politicians. In fact, our, our, uh, our, our, um, the Constitution itself says in order to form a more perfect union, like we're going to nail it, we're going to get it right, we're going to make everything perfect, and when it doesn't live up to the expectation, we shouldn't be shocked to see people be so upset. 
Look, my point here is not to get into the politics of it. My point here is to say there's really nothing new under the sun. From the time of Acts 14 to the present day, we worship people. We worship created things. And we shouldn't be shocked when we see these things in our own culture. We need to look at things with some fresh eyes. We need to look at things like exiles, like aliens and strangers who can say, I love the United States of America. I'm thankful to be a citizen of this country, but it is not my home. The world in its present form is passing away and my citizenship is the kingdom of God. We got to engage with our culture like exiles, like outsiders, like strangers who just don't fit because that's what we are. All right, I'm still alive. Let's keep going. Verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won over the crowds. They stoned Paul. So here it is. One minute they're going to be sacrificed to, next minute they're throwing rocks. And they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. And after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Can you even imagine? It's hard to know from the text, like, did he actually die and come back to life? Was it just, you know, was he like, like Wesley, like mostly dead? Was, you know, what? We don't know exactly, but all we know is he just had a brush with death, gets up, all right, on to the next city, let's go preach the gospel. He's going to not get a little, little thing like a near-death experience stop him from telling people about Jesus. I get discouraged by getting a, email. After they preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, you think? This is kind of a a, a montage, right? They're traveling around to these different cities. They're getting the message out. They're strengthening them. They're encouraging them. From there, oh, see, uh, Uh, When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I love that idea. I have a good picture of leadership, right? Like, hey, I'm here. I've taught you. I've trained you. Go with God. I got to move on. There's another place I got to go. I'm just going to entrust you to the Savior, build you up and send you out, empower you. Verse 24, they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And after they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. I mean, again, just boom, 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 traveling all over the place, this first missionary journey. From there, they sailed back to Antioch. That's kind of the hub for this, for this uh, the Gentile mission now. They went back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. And after they had arrived and gathered the church together, church always got to gather, they reported everything God had done for them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a considerable time with the disciples. Our third focus is the church. And the church is both universal and local. When you are saved, when you trust in Jesus, you you repent of your sins and you receive his grace, you are automatically added to the universal church. This is not maybe a phrase you find in the Bible. It's just kind of shorthand for saying all people from all nations, from all times, who will be together in eternity with God, worshiping Jesus our Savior. You are part of this. You, You have more in common with a villager in rural Africa 
who worships Jesus than you do with a non-Christian who matches all the same sociological and demographic things as you. You have more in common with a Chinese peasant girl because of your faith in Jesus than you do with another white middle-class suburbanite who doesn't know Jesus. But the idea here is it's local. All these different towns the church in this region and the church in that region and the church in this city and the church in that place. And you got to remember, at this time in the Jesus movement, it wasn't like they had a lot of different choices of churches to belong to. It's not like us. If you don't like the local megachurch, you can go to the local Bible church. If you don't like the local Bible church, you can go to the local Baptist church. If you don't like the Baptist church, you can go to the Methodist church. And then you can start the cycle over again. Lather, rinse, repeat. It's not like that. You got a small group of people who are committed to the way of Jesus. And if you don't like them, tough buns. You got to get over it because that's who's there. The local church, a, 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 a visible expression of those who are gathered for the purposes of worshiping Jesus. The church, number two, is, is cared for by elders. Church is cared for by elders. A lot of different churches do a lot of different uh, uh, methods for church leadership. And what we see most consistently in the pages of the New Testament is that the church is to be led by a team, a group of Holy Spirit-empowered, called men Elders, overseers, also pastors to care for and to shepherd the church. Elders are not perfect. Elders are also not demigods or superheroes. Elders are always flawed and imperfect. And at their best, they point people to the overseer of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the perfect pastor, the perfect shepherd. But also the church is, it's cared for and it's served and it's led by elders, but the church is not about elders. The church is actually about, it's made up of disciples. That's where the real action is, discipleship. See, when we, when we put leadership on too high of a pedestal, the church becomes a place where I go and I give my money to receive religious goods and services from professional Christians. They meet my needs. I do. I pay my dues. And it's just a completely backwards view of what the church is. The church is disciples. Biblical preaching, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them in hardship, prayer, fasting, all of those things that were listed, all the things going back to Acts chapter 2 of breaking bread and fellowship and prayers and all of that stuff where we get in each other's lives and say, hey, are you following Jesus today? Hey, are you repenting of sin? Hey, are you being encouraged in, in what God says about you? Are you reminded of the truths of the gospel? Is your focus on Jesus? Discipleship is where the action is at, friends. Not just attending a worship service. This is part of it. But life on life, teaching and sharing. I love that yesterday we had this student event and we called it a student discipleship day. Because, and yes, there was fun and there was games and there was food and there was snacks and stuff like that. But, but, but our teenagers, our, our middle school and our high school students, they have enough diversions and entertainment. We say we want to disciple them. So praise God for, for uh, the pastors and the, and the volunteers and the staff members that gave up an entire day to spend it with middle schoolers for crying out loud. They need flowers and wreaths and bulls and all of that given to them. So give them a steak. Don't, don't sacrifice anything, but give them a steak, okay? Thank you for those of you who invested in our, in our students because, again— they don't need another diversion and an entertainment. They need to be reminded of their worth and their value in Jesus Christ. The church is about discipleship. 
And then number four, discipleship just means time. I love that little line there. It says they spent a, a, a considerable time with the disciples. And again, with so many things vying for our attention, so many things that can take up our time, there are few things on planet earth as valuable as investing in other disciples. Just means time. That's all. Just time. Not only time in a given week or or month, but a long time. Sometimes it takes hard-headed and stubborn people like me a while to get things figured out. So patience and time, a considerable time. With all these different towns they're going to, I don't even know how much time they could have had. But they prioritized it and they did it. And again, it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of the good news of Jesus. This is not about this is not about going into the world and changing the world because the world is such a rotten place that we have to fix it. This is about bringing honor and glory to Jesus. This is about connecting people with the one true God revealed in the person and the work of Jesus. And we, we don't invest in the church because well, we want to make the church great again and we want to we like, you know, have the best church on the block and make people come to our church so they won't. I made a joke back before Christmas Eve, the eve of the eve. I made a joke that we, we, we stopped doing Christmas Eve. We moved it up to the eve of the eve so we could get a jump on the competition. And the joke went very poor. Nobody laughed. And I was like, actually, that's really good because we're not in competition with other churches. All who call upon the name of the Lord are our brothers and our sisters. We focus on the church because Jesus is worthy of all of our worship and because Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. That's why we focus on the church. All of this is about focusing ultimately on Jesus. This balanced perspective, focusing upward on God, focusing outward to the world, and focusing inward to the community of faith. Let me just close with a couple brief thoughts here. How do, how do you walk with this balanced focus? How do you do it? I think one of the places to start is knowing your own strengths and your own weaknesses. Some of you are really good at engaging with the Holy Spirit. You are regularly in the scriptures, your devotions time, prayer time, all of that just comes easily for you. Praise God for that. Be careful not to look down on people that don't have that same strength as you. But in fact, bring it to us, the rest of us, and share it with us. Some of you are really good at just having conversations with non-believers. That's awesome. Some people, that just terrifies them. You bring your strength and you contribute it. Some of us are going to be strong. Some of us are going to be weak in different areas. Bring your strengths. We share them with each other while working to shore up our weaknesses so that we can be balanced in our focus. One body, many parts. Number two, you need to cultivate an awareness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, maybe you shouldn't, I shouldn't reveal this. I talk to myself pretty often. Sometimes like I'm driving and, and then I'm like, oh, I put my headphones in so the people in the car next to me don't think I'm a lunatic, right? Or I'll be taking a shower and my wife will come into the room like, who are you talking to in there? I'm, no, me. Uh, me, practicing my sermon for Sunday. And one of the things for me though that I've been, I've been trying to remember is, okay, I need to get this out of the realm of conversation with myself and just move it over into the realm of conversation with the Holy Spirit. 
Or I was doing a, started a new reading plan at the beginning of this year, and it had like a few little verses in this big, long devotional. I'm like, this is kind of bothering me. I don't need to read some big, long devotional. My time would probably be better spent by just sitting and being quiet for these 10 minutes. And just being aware, taking some slow breaths and remembering that God, the same spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and at work within me. Just sitting and being quiet and being in his presence. We need to cultivate awareness of the spirit. Number three, I want to encourage you to engage culture like an outsider. We bought some books back when we were going through the book of Daniel together called Evangelism as Exiles that helps us remember that we are aliens, we are strangers, we're, we're not of this world and the earthly kingdoms. And I believe, we can talk to Myung, I think we actually still have some copies of it available at the Connect Desk if you want a copy of that. Just how do I think with fresh eyes about the culture in which I find myself? And the number four, disciple and be discipled. I believe this is one of the areas of growth that God has for us as we head into this new year. Really intentional discipleship. I, I love that we gather for worship. I love that we sing. I love even with community groups, just relationship and connectivity, but just more intentional discipleship here in the, in the weeks and months ahead. I'm thankful for leaders for our women's discipleship ministry and our men's discipleship ministry who are wanting to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and more news and information is coming about that. But again, it's all for the glory of God. It's not about our personal preferences. This is about giving honor and glory to him. And even a moment here as we go to the Lord's table, let's do so and remember that in a world where there's so much competing for our attention, we get to sit and break bread right now and engage with God. Let me pray with me. Lord, I ask and I pray now as we come to the table and as we sing and we worship you, I ask and I pray that you would help us be reminded that you are our focus. First and foremost, Lord God, that we would engage with you. And as we engage with you, as you fill us with your spirit and with your joy, it would help us to engage with the culture around us. It would help us to engage with our society, and it would help us to engage with our church community better. So fill us right now with your spirit and with your joy, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.